You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. I've said this often. One of the one of the hallmarks of summer for me is always the Major League Baseball All-Star Game. Uh, kind of the midway point of the summer. Obviously, the midway point of the Major League Baseball season doesn't have the same allure for me and many that it used to a generation ago, as I sound like an old guy right now. But always, uh, you know, it's a special time in the baseball season. And, you know, it's an important time because, you know, like in most sports, the All-Star break actually comes beyond the midway point. So we're more than halfway home. I mean, the Yankees, case in point, Yesterday was their 90th game. Today will be game number 91, which means they have 71 games after the All-Star break when it resumes next Friday in Colorado with a three-game series against the Colorado Rockies. Mets, uh, same thing. Today will be game number 90 for the Mets as they're 42-47. and It's a really important game for the Mets today because they dug themselves such a hole. Going 10 games under 500, falling 10 games back in the National League wild card race. And then all of a sudden, all of the things that people like me had said need to happen for this team to be successful started happening. Their two highest paid players, the two guys at the top of their pitching rotation, started pitching a lot better. The guys in their lineup who helped lead the way to a 101 win season last year started to produce more at the plate. And that has happened over the last week to week and a half. And even with yesterday's 3-1 to setback, look, they played against a team with a very good pitcher, Blake Snell, 11 strikeouts as he shut the Mets out over six innings. You're going to have games like that, especially against teams that also have talent, that also need the win. I mean, the Padres and the Mets, that's why this is such an interesting, interesting series to come at this time of the season. Because the Mets and the Padres are basically mirror images of each other. I mean, they were the two biggest stories in the offseason because of the amount of money they spent. Not as surprising on the Mets front, considering Steve Cohen is their owner. Extremely surprising on the Padres front. And the Padres obviously beat the Mets in the playoffs last year in that three-game wild card series. And then they went on to knock off the Dodgers. So the Padres really seem to be on the verge of building something. And then they come into this season with the knowledge that they're getting Fernando Tatis Jr. back, who's been excellent. And they also went out and signed Xander Bogarts. So you talk about high-priced players throughout their lineup. Tatis, Juan Soto, who's actually not making the big money yet, but plays like a high-priced player. Machado and Bogarts. Those are the first four in their lineup. By the way, number five in their lineup is Gary Sanchez, uh, who went one for four with a couple of strikeouts yesterday. But... Tatis, Soto, Machado, Bogarts, they spent a ton of money on their pitching staff, including the guy who shut the Mets out through six innings yesterday, Blake Snell, but they've been equally disappointing. They not only didn't build on the momentum last year, but they've taken a huge step back, as have the Mets. Now, for different reasons, for San Diego, and we're not going to get too much into the Padres because this is ESPN New York and not ESPN San Diego, but if we're comparing the situations of the two teams, I think the Padres, a lot of it was more chemistry-related. I mean, that is... That's a lot of, and I know it's not basketball, but still, that's a lot of big egos, a lot of mouths to feed with Tatis and Soto and Machado and Bogarts at the top of their lineup. The pieces just haven't seemed to fit together quite yet. For the Mets, it's been a lot simpler than that. The guys that are good, historically, haven't been good. You know, Alonzo... He got off to the hot start, and the power numbers are there, and they're always going to be there. But he has not been the same guy since he got hurt. 
and did he come back too quickly? Remember, they thought he was going to be out for three to four weeks. He was out for a week and a half. And then all of a sudden, on Father's Day, he's in the starting lineup, and we're all like, he's back already? I thought it was a mistake. But he hasn't been the same guy since. So it leaves you wondering, did he come back too soon? Even yesterday, 0 for 4 with three strikeouts, and his batting average is down to 213. His on-base percentage is 311. But Lindor was, outside of the power numbers, not that reliable for the first two and a half months of the season. Francisco Alvarez got off to a hot start, and then he cooled off significantly the last half of June when it seemed like the entire team outside of Brandon Nimmo and Tommy Pham cooled off. Jeff McNeil hasn't been good all season long. Starling Marte really hasn't been good all season long. Mark Hanna hasn't been good all season long. But in the last week, that has started to change. Lindor has been awesome. Lindor's been unbelievable at the plate, in the field, playing some of the best baseball of his career. Alonzo, the power numbers are still there. Alvarez is turning into one of the premier power hitting catchers in the entire sport. He was responsible for the one Mets run last night. I mean, think about this. This guy, who didn't even start the season as the starting catcher, he's got 17 home runs and 35 runs batted in. And we're not even at the All-Star break. And again, he was not the starting catcher at the beginning of the season. He was a prospect. He is no longer a prospect. He is a borderline star for many years to come in Major League Baseball. And that's what been one of the that's probably been the most positive development for the Mets this season. But he's been raking in the month of July. Starling Marte has been a lot better. Canna's been producing a little bit more. You still need to get Jeff McNeil going. And that's part of it though. The offense, last night notwithstanding, you're gonna have games like that against good teams, against good pitchers. And then the other part of it is the starting rotation. And Scherzer and Verlander, over the last month, and in the case of Verlander, over the last month and a half, they have started to formulate a very formidable one-two combination at the top of this rotation. Now, did it take longer than the Mets fans would have liked? Yeah, and big part of that was Verlander didn't pitch the first month. He was injured. And Scherzer had a very rough month of April that included a 10-day suspension for sticky stuff found on his hands. So it's kind of a false start for both of those guys. And then they were inconsistent, but they've both got it going right now. Not dominant, dominant. And to be honest with you, at their age, late 30s, pushing 40, I don't know that dominant, dominant, is going to happen on a consistent basis anymore for them. But are we talking like a 2.65, 2.7 ERA for the rest of the season? Yeah, that's what the Mets need. And by the way, that's pretty darn good because I just spent the first 20 minutes of this show praising Garrett Cole for his consistency this year and what he's brought to the Yankees. That's exactly what he's brought to the Yankees. He's not going out there and with a 1.53 ERA like Dwight Gooden in 1985. He's got a 2.7 ERA, takes the ball every five days, gives you a chance to win every five days. That's what they need from Scherzer and from Verlander, and then they've gotten that the last month to month and a half. And then as a result, when those guys pitch well, the rest of the starting rotation does not feel the same level of pressure to pick up the slack. Kodai Senga was named an all-star yesterday, an all-star replacement, but he's heading to Seattle along with Pete Alonso to represent the Mets in the all-star game. How's that value for the first half of the first season of a free agent you signed out of Japan? Carlos Carrasco 
He has shown flashes, I would say more than flashes throughout his career. He was really struggling the first half of the season, but the last couple of starts, especially his last start in Arizona, where he was brilliant, is starting to turn things around. Can he give you enough as the fourth starter as the Mets? I mean, think about that. Carrasco, the fourth starter on the Mets. If he can pitch to what he's been his entire career, and that's your fourth starter, that's really good. And then the guy pitched, who pitched last night and pitched well again last night, David Peterson has been one of the unsung heroes in this turnaround. I mean, he was god-awful his first stint this year. He was sent back down after allowing six runs in five innings in mid-May in a 10-3 loss in Washington. We thought we might not see him again. And then out of necessity, the Mets called him back up to face Milwaukee on June 27th. And what he's done since is six shutout innings against Milwaukee. And then one run allowed in four innings against San Francisco last Sunday. And then last night, three earned runs in five and a third innings, giving the team a chance to win every single game. They sent him down with an 8.08 ERA, and it is already down to a 6.46 in just three starts coming back from the minors. He has really given this rotation a shot in the arm. And I don't know the exact stat. It's like 22-4. and four. 23-4, and four, the Mets record, when the starting pitcher goes six innings. Because the weakest part of this team is the bullpen. You know, the bullpen's different than the lineup. The lineup hasn't been lights out for the Mets, but the lineup has guys that you expect to produce. The bullpen doesn't have that outside of David Robertson and maybe Adam Ottavino. The bullpen is filled with a bunch of guys that you hope for the best. So the less you have to rely on the guts of that bullpen outside of your top two guys, the better chance you have of winning. And that starts with the starting rotation. It starts with the big two guys, the future Hall of Famers, at the top of the rotation. It trickles down to the next tier of guys, Carrasco and Senga. And then if Peterson's going to produce for you like this, and don't forget, you still have Jose Quintana waiting in the wings to fill that final spot in the rotation. And that is how the Mets got to where they were last year. It seemed like everybody in the lineup hit well. McNeil won the batting title. Alonzo did Alonzo power things. Lindor had the best offensive season for a shortstop in franchise history. Brandon Nimmo is an on-base machine at the top of the lineup. Starling Marte is just a really good, solid veteran hitter, and he's clutch and he was really clutch last year. And the Mets haven't gotten that until this last week, week and a half. And as I continue to say about this team, this has to be more than a hot streak. This has to be more than a flash in the pan. This isn't what I described Billy McKinney to be two weeks ago for the Yankees, where he had a really good two-week stretch. No, no, no. Marte's starting to hit now. The expectation needs to be for him to do that the remainder of the season. Same thing with Lindor. You know, I'm getting on Stanton for his $30 million salary and not carrying the team. And Lindor's been better than Stanton. Don't get me wrong this year. But Lindor, that has to be the expectation for him too. You know, with great riches becomes or comes great responsibility. And when your team is struggling and you're looking around for someone to lead you, in that lineup, Lindor 
outside of Alonzo has to be the first person you look at, and he started to do that. But how do you get to 10 games above, or excuse me, 10 games below 500 in the first place? Because he wasn't doing that, and neither was anybody else outside of Brandon Nimmo at the top of the lineup. Nimmo's something, by the way. And I know he's cooled off a little bit in the uh, in the month of July, but that's just a, a tough week for him. But I remember when they drafted him. Sandy Alderson, I believe, was the one who drafted Brandon Nimmo out of Cheyenne, Wyoming. And the state of Wyoming doesn't have high school baseball. It doesn't have high school baseball. I always I, – I, I laughed when I thought of that because very, very early in my career out of college, uh, my first job was actually in Billings, Montana. And I worked for a couple of television stations in Billings, Montana. And part of our viewing area was northern Wyoming. So more than most people uh, around here in New York City – I feel I have the uh, my finger on the pulse of Wyoming sports, or at least know what they are. This was 20 years ago, so I'm not really keeping up on it these days. But when Brandon Nimmo was drafted, I laughed because I remember being in Billings, Montana, where they also don't have high school baseball in Montana, and the big thing is American Legion baseball. Now, people around here hear American Legion baseball, and if you're the same age as like my dad in your 70s, that brings you back because... When they were growing up in the 50s and the 60s, American Legion baseball was huge. And in this part of the country, it has kind of dissipated over time. But that's what Brandon Nimmo played. He played American Legion baseball. It's basically the equivalent of AAU basketball. But in Wyoming. And the Mets drafted him in the first round, in the middle of the first round. And it took him a really, really long time to get here. And that is, that's not an easy draft pick to make. You know what I mean? That's not like taking the starting shortstop from Vanderbilt or the stud left-handed pitcher like David Price for Vanderbilt. Remember when Tampa Bay drafted David Price? He was the best pitcher in the country for the best program in the country. He was a fireballing left-hander. You know, that's not a draft pick that if it doesn't work out, they're going to hang it on the general manager. This is a risk. And then, you know, Nimmo just got better every year, and he's such a – He's such an easy guy to root for. You know, people used to make fun of him because he was always smiling, and you're like, what's up with this guy? And he came up during a couple of years that weren't great for the Mets franchise. But he's literally been a constant in that lineup ever since then. And he's gotten better every single year. And he plays his absolute heart out. He's added power to his game this year. He knows exactly what his job is. His job is to get on base at the top of that lineup, and his job is to play Excellent defense in center field. And he does that. And again, he's gotten better every single year. And then people kind of raised an eyebrow or two in the offseason when the Mets signed into the eight-year, $20 million a year contract. And all of a sudden you're like, is Brandon Nimmo really a $20 million a year player? Well, guess what? In the grand scheme of Major League Baseball, he absolutely is. So what a great story. Uh, you know, that's, that's a terrific, terrific success story for taking a chance on a kid in the first round of the Major League Baseball draft who absolutely nobody, nobody knew about. But he's been really good for the Mets. But he's the only one outside of this last week, start to finish this year. I mean, he's the one who kind of uh, didn't allow them to completely fall apart by virtue of his play the first two, two and a half months when the rest of the team was really scuffling. But today's a big game. You got Scherzer. You know, Scherzer and Verlander, all they've got to do is – worry about taking the ball every five days they're extremely extremely smart pitchers they know how to manage themselves and their bodies at this point of their career and I think you're going to I, I think you're already starting to see the ramp up for both of them 
You know, they really took their lumps the first two months of the season. Injury-related, suspension-related, poor production. But they're going to come back from the All-Star break, and you're already starting to see it with a different focus because they they can now see the finish line from now to the end of the season. And to be honest, both of them, and I know they're both under contract for next year, but both Verlander and Scherzer can see the finish line of the end of their careers. So it's going to start to have a sense that, you know, don't leave anything on the table because there's no reason to. And you know Scherzer's like that because he pitches every single game like that. Verlander doesn't do it, you know, he's not as demonstrative and emotional looking as Max Scherzer, but he's just as smart and just as crafty and just as, as talented as Scherzer is. And I really think you're going to see a different level, a higher level from both of them during the stretch run of the season. And if the Mets get into the playoffs, we spent all last season talking about how the Mets are the one team you don't want to face in the playoffs. Why? Because of Scherzer and DeGrom at the top of their rotation. And unfortunately, that didn't work out because Scherzer was pummeled in game one against the Padres. DeGrom helped them win game two. Musgrove shut them down in game three. And just like that, their season was over. Now, the Mets, if they are going to move on and make a run this year, are going to have to do it from the wild card. But that was done twice last year. The Padres were a wild card team. After beating the Mets, they beat the Dodgers, and they went all the way to the NLCS. And the Phillies took it a step further. The Phillies had an awful start last year. I mean, the Phillies are the team the Mets have to look at. The Phillies had an awful start last year. They fired Joe Girardi. They were 10 games below 500. They had a roster that seemed old and stale and inflexible, a terrible fielding roster. And then the guys they were paying to be good started playing well. And they went on a run. They got into the playoffs. They beat the Cardinals in the wild card round. They beat the Braves in the NLCS. They beat the Padres. Excuse me. They beat the Braves in the NLDS. They beat the Padres in the NLCS. And next thing you know, they went from being 10 games below 500 in May to being in the World Series, overmatched by the Astros, sure. But if this season ends in the World Series for the Mets, considering where it was two weeks ago, considering where it is now, I think every single Mets fan would sign up for that. And it's funny the recent history you have in their division alone. 2019 Nationals from 10 games under 500 in May to World Series champs. 2021 Braves had to come from way back, and they won the World Series. And then in 2022, the Phillies from 10 games below 500 in May to going to the World Series. Is it the Mets' turn? I mean, God, they've certainly put enough finances, financial might into making it their turn. So you hope that this past week is the start of something, but it has to continue. And if you lose today, I don't want to put a ton of importance on one game out of 162, but when you start off and you fall 10 games below 500, each game, the rest of the season actually counts as two games because you've got to make up for you know one of those stupid losses you had to the Cardinals or one of those stupid losses you had to the Rockies earlier this season. And that's why today's so important. They eliminated their margin for error. The task isn't impossible for the Mets, but they have pretty much eliminated their margin for error. Yankees have very, very little margin for error, even less if Judge continues to be out. The Mets have no margin for error, which makes today, even though it's one out of 162, a very important game. Because if you lose today, 
You had that six-game winning streak, but if you lose today, then you gave two of them back. And then it turns into a four-game winning streak, and you only have 71 games remaining the rest of the season. We'll get some reaction from the Mets as we look ahead to their first half finale and also some more thoughts on the Yankees. And I'll talk about the NBA's midseason tournament, the details of that announced yesterday as well. It's Pat O'Keefe, 1-800-919-3776 if you want to chime in here on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. So the Yanks, a 130 first pitch against the Chicago Cubs at Yankee Stadium. Domingo Herman, Kyle Hendricks, the pitching matchup there. The Mets at 4-10 out on the West Coast in San Diego. Max Scherzer closing the curtain on the first half of the season for the Mets against Joe Musgrove. And again, the Mets are 6-1 and one in their last seven games. The Padres are 4-1 and one in their last five games. So those two teams continue to mirror each other. Uh, and it's an important game for both of them heading into the Midsummer Classic, which will be on Tuesday night in Seattle. Uh, two Yankees, Garrett Cole and Aaron Judge. Cole, I, I speculated on Friday that because he pitched yesterday, he might not be available to pitch in the All-Star game on Tuesday. But I guess Tuesday would be his throw day on two days rest. Michael Kay yesterday on the uh, Yes Network broadcast, or I guess it was on Prime yesterday, uh, he speculated that perhaps Cole would be in the running to be the starting pitcher for the American League. And if you're a Yankee fan, I guess you hope that's the case, unless you really don't care about this kind of stuff. Because um, Judge is obviously not playing, even though he was voted as a starter for the American League. So if Cole doesn't pitch, then... No Yankee representation in the All-Star game this year, which would be weird. For the Mets, you do have Alonzo, and as often, as, as usual, he'll be in the home run derby on Monday night, and he's already won that twice. We'll see if he can do it a third time in four uh, competitions this year. And then Kodai Senga was added as a pitching replacement yesterday to the National League roster. Um, Mets yesterday, 3-1 losers to San Diego. Uh, some post-game thoughts from the Mets as it went late into the night, a 10-10 Eastern time first pitch. You know, David Peterson, solid start once again, five and a third innings. He gave three earned runs. He struck out seven, but uh, gave his team a chance to win once again, which he has done all three times since being called back up from the minor leagues, which is all you can ask for from somebody who's the fifth starter in your rotation. Here's Peterson after the 3-1 to one loss. Felt like I was able to go after him with every weapon that I had, and felt good. Alvy and I were on, on a good wavelength together and uh, the game plan was good and so just kind of came down to a, a couple pitches for me and that one's on me. The hitters grinded. Uh, they never gave up and their guy pitched well and bullpen was great. Defense was great. And so it comes down to a couple pitches that I made early and, and gave them a lead. Their guy did pitch well. It was Blake Snell, a former American League Cy Young Award winner with the Tampa Bay Rays. Six shutout innings. The Mets only mustered three hits, so I talk a lot about margin for error. Uh, David Peterson had virtually none of it last night as his team scored one run on three hits. But overall, the Mets are 6-1 and one over their last seven games, uh, culminating today, heading into the All-Star break. Mark Hanna on what the last week has meant for this team. I mean, we're, we're, I think we're all proud of what we've done the last, this, during this road trip in the last week. And um, I think we, you know, the sense of urgency is very much there. We need to keep doing it. And uh, it continues tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow, now today, with Scherzer on the mound against Musgrove. And I talked about Lindor, and he's been really one of the stalwarts this week in helping to lead the turnaround. And that's how it should be. Lindor, Verlander, Scherzer, 
outside of Alonzo, those are your three most important players on the roster. And those three have really led this recent surge and this recent turnaround. Lindor's been great at the plate. He's been really good in the field as well. Uh, he's been an all-around player. And there was some talk in the Mets clubhouse this week, some disappointment that he wasn't named as a replacement as a National League All-Star when Dansby Swanson had to be replaced on the NL All-Star roster. But here's Buck Showalter yesterday speaking specifically about Lindor and his defense. Great player. We're lucky to have him. And uh, if something like that might happen, it makes you realize what an unbelievable level he's playing at when it sticks out that much. But I, I and we don't think twice about it. You know, the one Jeff was flying at him, they're both trying to get the ball and, you know, they're trying to keep from a collision there and catch the baseball. And then, you know, this is one of the firmer fields that you play on, but it's the same for everybody. It's a good field, but, you know, he's not the only one. We've had, you know, there's some good fielders make mistakes on the, in the big leagues. That's why Tough. great, good defense like his sticks out like a sore thumb. Max Scherzer today, 8-2, 4.03 earned run average. Joe Musgrove for the Padres, 7-2, a 3.56, a 4-10 Eastern time first pitch from Petco Park. We're awaiting the Yankees starting lineup for their matinee at the stadium against the Chicago Cubs. We'll give that to you as soon as we have it. And coming up next, we'll switch the conversation to the NBA. A major, a major announcement made by the NBA yesterday. Does anybody around here really care about it? Will it enhance your experience as a fan? We'll talk about it next on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. All right, let's switch to the NBA a little bit now. Uh, there has been talk about this. I discussed it on Friday night on my show right here. The NBA yesterday officially unveiled the format for its new in-season tournament. So essentially what this is, Adam Silver, and he spoke about this yesterday, he has been really kind of interested in doing something like this for about 15 years. Uh, Silver, a big European soccer fan, the in-season tournament, it's just a big part of the soccer culture. And soccer culture or football culture throughout the world goes back a lot longer than basketball culture or NBA culture. I mean, there's just so many more decades and decades of history and tradition steeped in that sport than the sport of basketball and specifically in the NBA. But what the NBA is trying to do, it's trying to tap in to some of that to drum up more interest at a time of the season where there's, you know, not a ton of interest. I mean, the way the NBA season goes, they open around the 19th or the 20th of October and there's excitement for opening night. There's excitement for that first week of the season. But then it kind of goes away for a little while because it's right in the middle of the fall. And right off the bat, you have the Major League Baseball playoffs in the World Series. You have the NFL that's right in the middle of the NFL season, right in the middle of the college football season. Um, and then around Christmas time, attention starts to shift towards the NBA again. Christmas Day is always the biggest regular season day in the NBA calendar even though the NFL is starting to move in on that by adding their own games on Christmas Day, which is hurting the ratings for the NBA product. There's nothing you can do about that. The NFL is the NFL, and they're always going to be the NFL. But what the NBA is trying to do, look, they're trying to create a little bit more competition, and they're trying to get more eyeballs on specific games than would normally be on those games at a time in the schedule 
before Christmas because a lot of times the casual NBA fan sees Christmas as the unofficial start of the NBA season when they start locking in on that. So there's going to be this in-season tournament involving all 30 teams, and what they did yesterday, it's kind of like a World Cup format. If you've ever watched the draw for the World Cup, which draws huge ratings around the world because it's vitally important for the biggest sporting competition in the world, um, they did that yesterday for the NBA. So there are, there are six groups. There's three groups in the Eastern Conference. There's three groups in the Western Conference, but it's not your divisions. And the teams were selected by tiers. There's 15 teams in each conference. So uh, tier one were the first three teams record-wise from last year's regular season. Tier two were the next three teams. And the Knicks and the Nets actually both fell into tier two because the Knicks were fifth place in the East last year. And the Nets were sixth place in the East last year. Tier three were seven, eight, nine. Tier four, uh, 10, 11, 12. And then tier five, uh, 13, 14, 15. Each group has one team from each of the three tiers, which were selected at random. So it wasn't like a straight mathematical formula, but the idea was to balance out the groups as much as possible. The Knicks landed in group two with the Bucks, the Heat, the Wizards, and the Hornets. The Nets landed in group three with the Celtics, the Raptors, the Bulls, and the Magic. And Group 1 in the Eastern Conference is the 76ers, the Cavs, the Hawks, the Pacers, and the Detroit Pistons. So each team will play the other four teams in their group one time. And those games are going to count as regular season games. So at the end of the year, every team is still going to have a record based on an 82-game season. Essentially... When the Knicks play the Bucks as part of their in-season tournament, that will also serve as one of the games that the Knicks would play the Bucks during the regular season anyway. Same thing when the Knicks play the Heat, when they play the Wizards, and when they play the Charlotte Hornets. So no games are getting replaced. No games are getting added. No games are getting taken away. There's actually only one game that's going to be added, and that's the championship game. The two teams that advance to the championship game of this midseason tournament and play for the NBA Cup, those two teams will play an 83rd game. They're the only two that will. However, that won't count for anything except for the NBA Cup and the money that is awarded to the winning team and the losing team of that game. But the stats from that game won't count, and the win or loss from that game will not count for total record. So after you play your group play, the winner of each group will advance to the knockout round. Six groups, six teams advance, and then there will be one wild card team from the east and one wild card team from the west that will also advance, and they'll play a knockout round style tournament. Now, while that's going on, those eight teams are playing. The other 22 teams that don't qualify for the knockout round will also be playing games on the same night that will, again, count towards the regular season record just to keep everything even and keep the schedule on track. So if the Knicks don't make the knockout round, if the Bucks win their group and the Knicks are not in the knockout round, then they'll play another team from one of the other groups that lost before the knockout round. They could play the Nets. They could play the Bulls. They could play any other team from the Eastern Conference, and that will, again, count towards their regular season record. So what's the point of this? Well, can it work? I, I, don't, I don't know if that's the question that you need to ask. The, the question you need to ask first and foremost is, is it going to make the product worse? Because that's the number one thing you don't want. Is it going to make 
the product worse? And I think the answer to that is no. The reason it won't make the product worse is because these games still count. The Knicks were going to play the Bucks anyway. They were going to play the Heat, the Wizards, and the Hornets anyway. So whether or not it's within the confines of the midseason tournament or just a regular, regular season game in late November, those are games that were going to be played anyway. So I think the risk of attaching stakes, and you can debate how high the stakes are, but I think the risk of attaching stakes to a game that was going to be played anyway is minimal because you had to play the game anyway. Now, will there be, if the Wizards start off 2 0, now the Wizards are not winning the NBA championship this season, but if the Wizards start off 2 0, if they beat the Hornets and if they beat the Heat, and now they're facing the Knicks, and now they're like, wow, we're halfway to making it out of Group 2. Will Wizards fans get excited for that game more than if they were playing the Knicks on a regular Tuesday night in mid-November? I think, I think the answer to that question is yes. I do think they will. Because what this does is it just brings more fans, you know, into the mix and gives them a chance to root for something. You know, when there's a sample size this small, when all you got to do is win four games, you got to play four games, get hot for one week. All right, anybody can run off a four-game winning streak. The Mets just ran off a six-game winning streak. <laughs> but it, you got to get hot over a course of four games. And if you win those four games and you have a chance to really play for something, again, in games that were going to be played anyway, well, then I think it's worth the effort. Now, what are, what are the stakes for the players? What's in it for the players? Well, that's the tricky part. How important is it going to be for the players and for the teams that manage their playing time? Because the winning team on the NBA Cup, of the NBA Cup, each player on that team will win $500,000. Okay? If your team makes the finals and loses in the finals of the NBA Cup, then each player takes home $200,000. If your team gets to the semifinals and loses, each of those players gets $100,000. And if your team gets out into the knockout rounds and loses in the quarterfinals, each player takes home $50,000. Now, the players who are going to likely swing these games, you know, if the Lakers are going to make a run, you would assume LeBron James and Anthony Davis are going to have a hand in that. If the Phoenix Suns are going to make a run to the NBA Cup, you would assume Devin Booker and Kevin Durant will have a hand in that. Is that money going to make a huge difference for them? No, probably not. Probably not. But I do think ultimately it's worth trying. And the criticism that the NBA is receiving, that this is never going to work, I just, to be honest, I think that's kind of a lazy argument because I think anything is worth trying as long as it's not going to make your product worse. And I don't see how... I don't see how this is going to make the NBA product worse. If anything, it's not going to cause a ripple effect at all, which is hard to imagine. NBA Deputy Commissioner Mark Tatum, local guy, went to Brooklyn Tech, grew up in Brooklyn. He was on ESPN Radio this week, and he spoke about what is the value of the in-season tournament. 
I would tell you that the, uh, that the goal is to create a new championship tradition, uh, much like we see in international soccer, international basketball, and this new tradition and this new opportunity to win a championship in the middle of the season um, has become, we've seen internationally, meaningful to teams, the players, and the fans. And now with 25% of our players born outside the United States, one of the things that we have realized is that those international players are accustomed to playing in these cup-like tournaments and these in-season tournaments. Um, and the fans have really taken to it. And so we're, in essence, taking regular season games and giving them even more significance by having them count towards this in-season tournament. And the last statement there by Mark Tatum is why I think this is it's worth taking a shot at because it's not making the product worse. They are taking regular season games that were going to be played anyway and giving them increased significance. If the Knicks... You know, I use the Wizards as the example, but we've got a lot of Knicks fans presumably listening to this show this morning. You know, if the Knicks beat the Heat, all right, let, or let's say they, they, they beat the Hornets, which they should. They beat the Wizards, which they should. You know, they beat the Bucks. Giannis either doesn't play, has an off day, and all of a sudden the Knicks are 3-0, and and they've got to beat the Miami Heat, who Knicks fans already have a certain feeling about. And if they beat the Heat, they get into this knockout round and have the opportunity to play for some stakes, will that make Knicks fans more excited to watch a Heat game in early December than if it was just a regularly scheduled Heat game? And my gut feeling is yes, it will. All Knicks fans, no. Some Knicks fans, yes. And that's why I think it's a worthwhile effort. I mean, what is, what's the prize money for this? $500,000 per player? Two, I, don't know what, I don't know what the total pot is. Whatever it is, it's a pittance in the whole big pot of what the NBA has money wise. So it's not, it's not a huge risk on their part. And then I do think with the semifinals on December 7th and the finals on December 9th, both in Las Vegas, I think those are going to be exciting for the NBA. And again, if it's the Lakers against the Suns, and if it's the heat against the bucks, I think those games will draw a higher rating if they're in the semifinals of the NBA Cup than if it was just a regular season game between the Lakers and Suns and then if it was just a regular season game between the Bucks and the Heat. So we'll see. But the Knicks are in a tough group if you want to analyze the Knicks group. I do think the Knicks fa found their way into the toughest group in the Eastern Conference because they have both the Milwaukee Bucks and the Miami Heat to contend with to try to get out of Group 2. Could we call it the Group of Death like they do in soccer? I don't know. 1-800-919-3776. More thoughts on this, and we'll get you set for the day in baseball for the Yankees and Mets as we continue here on 98.7 ESPN New York. You're listening to Pat O'Keefe on 98.7 ESPN. The uh, Yankees take on the Cubs in the rubber match of their three-game series. Yankees lineup out today. And it's Glaber Torres leading off and playing second. Giancarlo Stanton back in right field for the second straight day after his big day yesterday with two home runs. Anthony Rizzo batting third at first base. Harrison Bader is the cleanup hitter in center field. Josh Donaldson got to get him in the lineup. And in the five hole, he's the designated quote-unquote hitter. Billy McKinney is batting sixth. He's in left field. DJ LeMahieu batting seventh at third base. Anthony Volpe at shortstop out of the leadoff hole today in the number eight spot. And Kyle Higashioka is behind the plate and batting ninth for Domingo Herman. Two starts removed from perfection. 
Last start was a mixed bag. Uh, we'll see if he can finish the first half on a high note today. You know, I mentioned DJ LeMayu, and he kind of gets lost in all of this. Stanton is he's the biggest star currently in the Yankees lineup, and up until yesterday, his batting average was below 200. Uh, so he gets most of the attention for what he's not doing or what he's not producing. Anthony Rizzo has become one of the leaders in the clubhouse, and he has gotten a lot of attention for what he's not doing or not producing. Obviously, Josh Donaldson is the new lightning rod. Um, you know, not the most likable guy in the world anyway. If you go back to his time on previous teams, from the Yankee fans' perspective, not the most likable guy when he was with the Minnesota Twins and basically called out Garrett Cole for cheating. Um, the incident last year with Tim Anderson calling him Jackie Robinson in the middle of a game against the White Sox. You know, he just does stupid things, and because of those reasons and more, not the most likable guy. The biggest reason he's not the most likable guy is because he's a 140 hitter. So he gets a lot of the attention. Before him, it was Aaron Hicks. Before him, it was Joey Gallo. DJ LeMahieu, uh, not getting a lot of attention, but just as important for what he's not contributing so far this season, or last year, for that matter. And the fact that with this depleted lineup, LeMahieu is batting seventh behind guys like Billy McKinney and Josh Donaldson and Harrison Bader just shows what the Yankees think of him right now. So Yankees and Cubs at 135. More on that in the NBA midseason tournament as we continue.